place where uh, the Catholics believe where Jesus' body was laid after he was crucified. There's a very nice, wonderful, shiny, convenient marble stone laying in there. And when you walk in the door, everybody is kind of, they're down on their knees and they're weeping on this stone. And our tour guide, I just, just made such an impression on him. He said, Any, anybody who wants to get sick, you want a cough, you, you go right down there with them. Everybody in Jerusalem goes down there and they kneel and they cry and they sneeze and they slobber all over this thing. And he, he made fun of the idea, as he told us, being a Jew, he said, uh, uh, there's no way the Jewish authorities would have allowed a criminal, what they thought of Jesus, having been killed outside the city, to be brought back in the city to be buried there. Just, and that church is right in the center of Jerusalem. But that, that just always sticks in my mind when I think of Easter, where he was buried. And the reason I think of that is because everybody that's down there crying, everybody that's down there being very emotional, and we are, it's an emotional image, the crucifixion. Because it is the essence of torture. It is the perfect way to painfully extract life from a human being. It took hours. They died all day long. They did everything that they could to make sure that person stayed alive long enough so they could inflict more pain. And because of that, we look at that and everybody thinks, man, what, what a tragedy. There was the only person that was ever perfect in the world. He was innocent. And somehow they, they got up to him. Even his friend, Judas, betrayed him, gave him away, and they caught him, and they killed him. Man, what, what a tragedy. But the Bible really, it doesn't present it as a tragedy. It's a triumph. Jesus told his disciples, we're getting ready to go to Jerusalem, and a couple days from now, I'm going to be turned over to sinful men. I'm going to be tried, crucified. On the third day, boys, I'll be back. And do you remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, Lord, if there's any way, if there's any other way to get around this, if there's any way to do this, I'm all ears. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. If there's any way that this cup can pass from me, why would he pray that? He knew what was coming. He was not shocked when Judas and those soldiers showed up with a kiss in the garden. He knew what was coming. And he marched right toward it. See, there's the plan of God in all of this. Luke chapter 19. And let's start reading at verse 29. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do ye loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. It's not a, an, a command you would receive every day. That's kind of strange, isn't it? He wants a colt that's never been written, straight off the showroom floor, no miles, and he tells them exactly where to go. And when you get there, when the owner says, hey, what are you doing? This is what I want you to tell them. That the Lord, capital L, he's identifying himself as he's Lord. You tell them that the Lord has need of him. 
Now, this is a, a strange kind of set of circumstances, but when you read your Bible, there's kind of a lot of circumstances that we really don't understand until you do a little digging, a little scratching. So we just read through this. Well, let's just keep going. And who knows why Jesus is doing this? Verse 32, And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. And as they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon, and as they went, they spread their clothes in the way. Now, now it's getting a little more interesting. More information here. We, we got this colt, and the Bible went out of its way to tell us nobody's ever sat on that thing. Comes, we put the Lord on him, and now everybody's starting to throw their clothes out. There. Now this picture's starting to take shape. The next verse, verse 37, when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now we're seeing something, a colt, got him from nowhere, but he's just perfect. He's never been ridden. Everybody's casting their clothes down. He's riding, and now we hear something. There's this vast noise going up. The disciples are praising him, and in verse 38, it tells you what they were saying. Blessed be the capital K, King. <coughs> Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, as 21st century Americans, everything we've read so far still doesn't strike a chord. Still doesn't even mean much. So he's riding a, don- a donkey. So, so they put clothes down. So what if they're all chanting Blessed be the king. Does that mean anything to us? I mean, is that a picture that you've seen before that you thought, hey, you know, when I see this, I'll know something's happening. To us, this is just somebody 2,000 years ago, that's kind of how they got around. They rode four-legged animals. Sometimes to show people that they really liked them, they may prostrate in front of them. They may throw their clothes down. That might be some cultural thing. I mean, blessed be the king. There were lots of kings in those days. They didn't have House of Representatives, Congress, they didn't have the things that maybe democracy... So the king thing, that, that doesn't strike a chord. But we'll look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Wait a minute. Anytime we as Americans run the risk of missing something in the Bible, the Pharisees usually jump off the page and put a tent stake in the ground and say, park it right here. If they're upset, if they're demanding that Jesus shut his disciples down, what's that tell you? Something something that they see with their eyes they don't like. Now, what is it? What is it that these Pharisees can't take? They didn't say this when the cult first showed up. They didn't say when the garments went down. They didn't say it when they first started chanting. But then when they got to, blessed be the king. See, that to those Jewish people that lived back here on this page. That meant something. They're identifying the Messiah. Keep your finger right there. Turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah toward the end of the Old Testament. Malachi is the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah is right before that. Zechariah chapter 9.
and verse 9. One of these small prophecies tucked away in the Bible that gives an indication of how to identify the Messiah whenever he does show up. Verse 9, rejoice greatly. Sound like what they were doing? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. So this has to take place where? In Jerusalem. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold thy capital K, king cometh unto thee, He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. All the Jewish people knew that when our Messiah comes, he's not going to come like those Roman Caesars riding on this white war horse, prancing through a very expensive Model A. Mm -mm. This was going to be a colt, as that verse indicates, lowly. He's going to enter a lot different. You know, you can read about Alexander the Great coming to Jerusalem or these Roman rulers or some of the Persian or Egyptian rulers, how they wanted to make an entrance into the ancient holy city. But all the people that know their Bible, at least a little bit, and that's what those Pharisees are thinking, wait a minute, as soon as they saw him on that colt and the people chanting this verse, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, the king, they immediately, wait, wait, shut this down. Rebuke your disciples. Go back to Luke. They have to shut this down because they know if we let this parade go on a couple more blocks, what is going to be cemented? They're going to be making his statue inside there. He's going to be announced Messiah, and where are we going to be? We're out. And they had made up their mind, of course, that he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the Son of God, and they had decided already, we're going to kill this guy. Long time ago. And they're looking for a way to do it. These Pharisees throughout your Bible, anytime you see them jump up and down and start screaming and throwing a hissy fit, always stop. And it's at that point you've got to dig a little into the Jewish culture to find out why are they so mad. Well, there's something else we've got to pull apart here. If this really is a picture of the Messiah coming into Jerusalem, because remember, Has Jesus been to Jerusalem before? Of course he has. Why this time is he intentionally organizing the parade? Because whose idea was it to go get this colt? It was him. The disciple didn't come around and say, Jesus, you look tired. I mean, we've been walking since Jericho. Just rest your legs. And they threw him on there. That's not what happened. He told the disciples before they had any thought Uh, Over there in a village, there's a colt tied. You loose it, bring it to me. If the owner says there's an issue, you tell him the Lord has need. The Lord has need of it. Jesus is organizing the parade here. Now, why is that a big deal? Keep your finger here. Go back to Luke chapter 4. Throughout the Gospels, we find where Jesus tried to keep his official title, his official identity, secret. Sounds strange. When you first hear that, you think, come on. He, he, didn't, he wanted everybody to know that's why he came here. In the end, yes, he does want that. But you find always throughout the Gospels, just think, let your mind wander. When Jesus would heal the blind man's eyes, what did he tell that guy right after that? You, you go show yourself to the priest, but you tell nobody what's happened here. What about when he healed someone, maybe raised 
a, a woman's boy back to life. And he told them, you tell nobody. He did that all the time. So what he told, he said, my time is not yet. My, my what? My time. That means there must be a specific tick, tick, tick. Let's see, for you guys, it's going this. Tick, tick. There must be a specific time on God's clock for some event to happen. Does that make sense? There's no other way to read that. Now, here in Luke chapter 4, verse 41, Jesus is casting out the devils. Let's start at verse 40. When the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. All of them, it said, diverse diseases. And verse 41, And devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. I find that very interesting. The devils knew who he was. And they used the title that the Jewish leaders wouldn't use. Ouch. That, That tells you where they were at. That's why Jesus never hesitated to say, You guys aren't going to heaven, Pharisees, and even the people you're following, you're making sure they don't get to heaven. He never missed any words with those guys. The devils came out saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not, or didn't allow them, he silenced them not to speak. For they knew that he was Christ. Now see, this is back in chapter 4. This is early on. Jesus is not allowing to publicly declare himself as Yeah, he's God's son. And he even talked to his disciples. Who do do people say that I am? Remember Peter's response. Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah. And Jesus said, who do you say? And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus accepted that. But out in public, he did not announce publicly to the Gazette, to the Tribune. He didn't allow anybody to put in print that he was the Christ. He even tells the demons who are willing, they know who's coming. And there's one time where he casts out the demons, and you remember that they said, you are Christ, are you come to torment us before the time? Before what time? What does that indicate? That there's a time coming that they know about that their judgment is set and it ain't good. They know The devils know there is a time set where they are going to get it. And they thought, they're telling Jesus, listen, it ain't time yet. Here, he's not even allowing them to tell the whole crowd who he is. Now, the only reason I brought you to this was to get this fact in our mind. Go back to Luke 19. All through his ministry, because here in Luke 19, he's heading into Jerusalem for the last time. This is his last week on earth. He's going in there to have the Last Supper. They're going to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're going to try him that night, and he's dying the next day. Why did he wait until that last week before he would allow anybody to identify him as Christ? That that, that kind of makes you think a little. There is a prophecy deep into the weeds I'm not going to get, we're not going to look at, but Daniel chapter 9 talks about it, gives a time of when the Messiah had to show up. 
And there was a guy back in the 1880s. He was head of Scotland Yard. He was a Christian. He did some tabulations using a 360-day calendar, which the Bible always uses. And he found out that to the day, from the time of that prophecy in Daniel till this day when Jesus is going in Jerusalem the last time, to the day, 173,880 days. God didn't miss it by even a day. Gabriel told Daniel there will be 70 times 7 till the Messiah shows up. <coughs> and our Lord, pretty darn accurate, he organized this parade. This was his doing. He told them, go get the colt. He's the one that, as they're chanting, blessed be the king, and the, and the Pharisees say, you better shut those guys up because, hey, this is starting to look like an announcement of the Messiah. Look at what Jesus says in verse 40. Luke 19, verse 40. Jesus answered and said unto the Pharisees, I tell you that if these should hold their peace. Who are the these? The people, the disciples. They're human beings and they're chanting. Jesus said if they held their peace, what would happen? See, we, we read that and we think, that's poetry. That's pretty cool that even nature would. All of this is about announcing who the most important person in the universe is. There's a part of me that thinks he wasn't lying. God got donkeys to talk. Three people walked through a fire and a dinner. God can do a lot of things. And when Jesus says, if these people didn't holler out who I was, See, it's now time to announce it. He's not telling anybody, hey, keep it quiet. He's organizing it. And he said, even the very rocks would cry out. See, there's a part of me that just gets goosebumps thinking, let's, let's put this to test. Everybody shut up. Let's see. Because God ain't going to let this go silently, his son go into Jerusalem. He's going to be announced as the Messiah. The Son of God. And you say, John, you're kind of making a lot of that. Well, so is the Lord. God planned this for 483 years. And as this thing came to pass, he's making sure every T is crossed, every I is dotted of all the prophecies. That Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, if you have doubt that that is what this passage is talking about, when Matthew records this, Matthew even records the quotation from Zechariah 9.9. The writers of the Bible knew that that's what this is. The Messiah is supposed to come. He's supposed to ride a certain way in here. That's how we're going to identify him. And there were all of these check marks. Jesus did them all. One of the things I like about something like this, this makes me respect my scriptures. Makes me want to dig just even a little more. What, well, I mean, what else is in here? Because look at the next verse. When he was come near, he stops, oh, he beholds the city, and he weeps over it. Now, I want you to keep your finger right there. Turn to Matthew chapter 23, I think. Matthew 23. And the last three verses of that chapter. This is 
Jesus, in Matthew's account, he weeps over the city in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. Jesus has, the reason he's crying is he, he lets the cat out of the bag. Why is the Lord emotional about that city? Because his desire has always been for what? For the inhabitants of that city to be his people. He just said, I've always, I just wanted to gather you together. You ever seen a mother with her kids arriving at home if they haven't been there for a while? If they've been off to college, got married, haven't been home for a while? Jesus says he, he has always wanted to gather them. That's his heart's desire. But what did he say? He said, you guys that stone us the prophets and kill us those that are sent to you? Not only could he not gather them, what did they do to everybody he sent to them? Even, remember what Jesus said in, in another place? That there is no prophet that's even allowed to die except he has to be in Jerusalem. It's almost like a, a proverb that no prophet dies outside of Jerusalem. They all go in there to die. And look at the last four words of verse 37. He wanted to gather them, and you would not. They wouldn't have him. Now, that right there is the tragedy of all history. God's city, the city he put his name on, Jerusalem, that the whole world should look to, they killed everybody he sent to them. And they had no desire to accept him. They now have his son coming there. And Jesus, he's going in for the last time. He knows now it's his turn. He's going in there like all the other prophets, the people that were sent. He's going to get the same fate, even worse. But it doesn't end there. Verse 38. The, the tragedy was they wouldn't accept him. He says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Do you know why? After Jesus died, he was resurrected, and when he left this earth, that it was not long until what happened to Jerusalem. That thing was raised, plowed under. They literally destroyed even the homes there. The Romans got so tired of dealing with what they called the Jewish problem there because the Jews, if they had a temple, they were always very heightened, very emotional about it. That they, were, they, they meant to try to follow what they thought the law was. And because of that, the Romans couldn't govern them. There was always some revolt, always some uprising, and the Romans finally said, we've had it. We don't care what you people do, but just at least be peaceful. And they couldn't. They couldn't coexist with the Romans. So the Romans went in there and made it illegal for even a Jewish person to be found in Jerusalem. If they were there and they were Jewish, they killed them. The city was destroyed. They made it illegal for Jews to even live there for a while. And that's what Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate. See, once they rejected their Messiah, it was bad. Now that's the tragedy of all history. And the triumph is in the next verse. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth. And thank goodness there's the next word. Until. What does until mean? It means there is going to be a time 
where you will see him again. Jesus is announcing a judgment. I'm leaving. I ain't coming back for a long time until you won't see me again until you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's what they're going to say. They'll be kind of halfway forced to say it the next time he comes back. But that is going to be one triumphal day because Jerusalem is going to welcome him with open arms. And he's going in there for the last time. He's going to set up David's throne and he ain't leaving. The whole world will come to bow down before him. He'll rule with a rod of iron. Those three verses are Israel's history in three verses. God always wanted them, but they wouldn't. And because of that, go back to Luke 19. There was a very severe judgment, unfortunately. So we're at verse 41. When he was come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it. And that's what we just read in Matthew. And this says, saying, if you had known, see, I always stop right there. If they had known, what does that imply? What was it possible to do? It was possible to have known. To to have known what? Even thou, at least in this day, the things which belong unto thy peace. They were supposed to have recognized that it was him. He was on that donkey. He had been born in Bethlehem. He was born of a virgin. He had raised the dead, healed the sick. He had done all the things that the Bible prescribed the Messiah would do. And when they didn't recognize him, this is what Jesus says. If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this day, the day that he's entering Jerusalem for the last time on the donkey, everybody's shouting, blessed be the king. That's the parade. That's the image that's on all our posters. That's how we recognize the Messiah. And they couldn't know. They couldn't figure it out. And Jesus says, if you had known, at least in this day, the things which belong to thy peace, but since they didn't, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Do you know why the nation of Israel to this day doesn't just quite yet, they're getting close. Closer, let's say. Do you know why they haven't recognized Jesus as their Messiah even yet? Because the Lord pronounced a blindness, a partial blindness. He said it right there. They are now hid from your eyes. You've talked to people who there was a certain truth you're trying to get across to them and literally just it's hid from their eyes. They can't see it. Now he says in verse 43, For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. That's what we've already talked about. That's what happened 70 AD when they came and destroyed Jerusalem. The Romans made an end of their problem. And Jesus foretold it. Now there are secular books that record at that time when the Romans started digging that trench around Jerusalem that the Christians, because there were Christians there, followers of the Lord, when they saw 
this verse coming to pass. Digging that trench around our city, they got out of there. But the Christians weren't left in there because they took the words of the Lord to heart. Notice what this says. Look at the last phrase. Why does all of this happen to Israel? The end of verse 44, it says, because. In the Bible, the word because is very important. God will tell you why things happened. Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. I get goosebumps every time I read that. He held them responsible to know what? The time that he was supposed to get there. That's crazy. That's amazing to think of. We all think that this stuff all just happened randomly. He just happened to show up one day. Mary and Joseph got to that barn wherever they had this kid. He just Everything that ever happened was planned, programmed. Even this triumphal entry, Jesus organized it. This thing was a triumph of God's planning. This was not a tragedy. Yes, I get emotional sometimes thinking about the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, but only in the sense that he was willing to stay in that pain, not because they found him and got him. Jesus was working his way toward the cross from the day he was born. What gets me is he stayed there. He said, I could call 12 legions of angels to get me out of this at any time. And he stayed there pay the price for me, for you, to bear the sins of many so that we would have a way to get to our Father. That's what that prayer in Gethsemane is all about. Lord, if there's any other way that this cup can pass for me, let's take it. But, said, Lord, if not, and there must not have been any other way, otherwise Jesus' prayer would have been answered. See, there was no other way. God had set this thing down in the Scripture even the day that he died. Go to Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26. And we need to just quickly go through how Jesus orchestrated the day that he died. Chapter 26, verse 1. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. He's finished a lot. He has finished all his sayings. Now something's going to happen. Verse 2. You know that after two days is the feast of Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. See how he knows where he's going? Not a shock. But here's something that jumps out at me in that verse 2. What two things did Jesus link together? Feast of Passover with what other event? His death. See, we, we, you read that and you just think, okay, there's just a checklist. He has to do this. He has to go to the feast. He also has to die. He probably has to have that Passover meal, the Last Supper. No, he's linking them. These aren't separate events. If you, ever, if you have a bunch of kids in your house and you take them to the Omaha Henry Dorley Zoo, for the last 30 years, you realize that the old Rosenblatt Stadium and the zoo shared a parking lot. You could tell people, well, we're going to Rosenblatt Stadium to take our kids to the zoo. Somebody that's never been there, doesn't know the parking lot is shared, you think, well, they're just doing two separate things. 
No, those things are linked. You kind of have to park in that parking lot to walk across the street to get to the zoo. It's the only place they let you park. They're connected. Jesus is connecting the Passover when what happens? The Passover lamb is killed with, as he says, the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Next verse. Then assembled together the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people, unto the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas. And they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. Jesus announces he's going to die, and now the next two verses you tell you, well, who's looking to kill him? These people don't know that Jesus knows he's going to die. They're off consulting together. We've got to kill this guy. We'll kill him any way that we can. But the next verse, look at verse 5. But they said, not on a feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. These guys want to kill Jesus. So it's no shock that he's going to die. But what is in their intention about the day that he dies? We've got to make sure, according to them, that it doesn't happen on a feast day. That's the, the time that this is, is the Passover feast. They think, we've got this huge crowds in the city, and when crowds get together, there's mob mentality. We've got to make sure that the Romans don't get mad at us and destroy this whole thing, so tamp it down and keep it quiet. They didn't want to have an... A tumult among the people. We've got to kill him, but not on a feast day when everybody's celebrating. Keep that in mind. You turn the page, and you get down to verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. That's also prophecy. The Bible predicted that he would be sold for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Now, you keep that in mind. The people that are hiring Judas want Jesus dead except for one day. We, we, we can't kill him on Passover. And Judas is looking for an opportunity. At any time, they can kill him. He's looking for an opportunity. But now as you read, notice how the timing plays out. The next verse Verse 17, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? That happened every year. Huge feast to remember God bringing them out of Egypt when the death angel passed over their homes because the lamb's blood was applied to their doors. And this is the time of the year that what you're about to read is going to take place. The disciple, it's so close, the disciples say, Sir, uh, you, where do you want to eat the Passover? The sun's setting. The day is getting long. We've we got to have this done. They had to do it at a certain time on a certain day. That's where they're at. Verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Now, you and I aren't used to life and death situations. We just don't deal with that on a daily basis. When somebody says, "Who somebody here is going to betray me, we think, okay, when we're playing hide-and-seek, they're going to tell people I'm hiding in the garden. They're going to give away my position. When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, he's talking about leading the Romans here to kill me. Now, if you're at supper 
Are you going to listen to somebody that says, hey, pass the fried chicken, and we've just identified that guy is going to be the one that ends up killing you? Because the next verse, as they were eating, Jesus says, him that dips with me in the sop, he's the one. Jesus identified Judas as the betrayer. What does that do? Remember in, the, in John, Jesus tells him, as he's dipping it in, he looks him in the eye and he says, that which thou doeth, do it quickly. By identifying him as the betrayer, do you think Judas can sit there and finish his meal? You're going to pass him the fried chicken? I doubt it. They're, they're, they're looking, at it. if this guy really, if they really believe that, they're probably killing him before he gets out the door. You have to look at this as Jesus is cementing the day of his death. See, Judas has to either fish or cut bait. If he's going to do it, he's got to go now because he's been found out. The Lord has announced to everybody he's the guy. He runs out the room. They finish up their Passover meal, the last supper that we know, and they go out to Gethsemane to sing, and then who shows up out there? Judas with the Roman soldiers. That's what Jesus says, you betrayed me with a kiss. Jesus made sure by identifying Judas and initiating his opportunity of when he was going to betray him, he made sure that he was betrayed and handed over to the Romans on Passover. When even his enemies, what were they trying to avoid? His enemies wanted to make sure that it didn't happen on Passover. That's what that verse said. They would do it, but not on the feast day. What I'm trying to get across to you. No matter what the plans of evil men, the Lord will have his way. He worked this thing out so that while they're in the temple, slitting the throat of the lamb, what's happening on a wooden cross out there across the street? Jesus and two male factors are dying. God the Father was sacrificing his son outside. And once that thing was over, over the curtain torn in two from top to bottom, and God pulled it back to show we're not doing this anymore. God made sure the day that he entered into Jerusalem. God made sure the day that he died was on Passover. God made sure of every single ingredient in the event. So much so, turn to John chapter 19 and let's finish there. John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus has just died. He has said, it is finished in verse 30. In verse 31, the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation. Preparation for what? That Passover. That high feast day. That the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was a high day. They besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. And you think, well, why do we need that information? 
For one thing, the Bible had predicted a thousand years in advance that not a bone of him would be broken. Now you, you think of the torture that he went through. Yet, God made sure that the prophecy had to come to pass. Not a bone would be broken. These verses make it sound like that. To make sure that you were dead in crucifixion, they broke your legs. But when they saw, that's what the verse says, when they saw he was dead already, put their baseball bat down and they did not break his legs. Now the, these verses tell you why. Verse 36 for these things were done because the Roman soldier was tired. And you need to understand something. What were those Roman soldiers told to do? What were their orders? Break their legs. Make sure they're dead so we can get their bodies off so these Jewish people stop bothering me. We've got to get their bodies off the cross, get them buried before the Sabbath day gets here. These soldiers that didn't break Jesus' legs, they disobeyed a direct order, probably. And why did they do that? This was done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. God made sure that every T was crossed, every I was dotted, so that you as the reader would have an assurance that, you know what? The penalty for my sin has been written off. God's wrath in heaven is satisfied in my case. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be woken up in the middle of the night thinking, well, I mean, I, I was a pretty bad teenager. I did a lot of stupid things. I wonder if God remembers that stuff. The sacrifice of his son paid all of it. It's not a tragedy. Every ingredient of it was a triumph. It is finished. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that this message would be strong in our hearts this Easter season. And as we celebrate the coming day of resurrection morning, that you would help us to be, re to, to be reminded of the price that was paid for us the lengths that you went to to make sure that we were cleansed. Father, we thank you for everything that is written down in your word. Help us to see it new and fresh every day. In Jesus' name, amen.